First of all, Happy New Year. Let me not even start my message without saying Happy New Year. We have made it. We survived into 2021. Um, and yeah, I don't really know what else I should say after Happy New Year. I'm not a very celebratory person, I guess. Happy New Year. Um, hey, I, I hope you enjoyed the service, the New Year's Eve service that we had as well. Um, Crystal Nay, we got to get her back. She was fired. Matt and the crew leading us in worship. Uh, Jeff Ross is still. We're going to put some clips of, of the service if it's not still up because we're pre-recording this uh, message. If it's not up yet, it will be up by the end of the week. We'll put the messages and some of the songs and stuff up because I know many of you enjoyed it. At any rate, I want to hop into this message and, and kind of explain the purpose of what we're doing and why we're doing it. So obviously, you can tell we're recording on my cell phone um, and we're doing something that's a little less in our production. And here's the reason behind that. Financially, over the last, uh, how many months has it been since so September? Is that five? September, October, November, December, four? Has it only been four months? Dang. With uh, 2020, it adds like a year to every month. Um, but anyway, over the last four months, we've been running really strong in terms of our staff and with our production, uh, financially, uh, because we had a large gift come in right before uh, we started launch our, our launch. Anyway, coming into the next six months, uh, we are having to kind of work double time to fundraise and to make sure that we can keep things going. Uh, part of the problem is that during COVID, giving has gone down across the body of Christ in general. That's why we haven't received a lot of support even from the churches that would normally support us uh, because a lot of them, even their giving has gone down 60%. What has concerned me though, is that in the midst of the need here at our church and the need around the world, I'm talking to so many millennials and young people who are doing financially okay. They haven't been hurt in this season, but they're also not giving into the work of the ministry. They're not tithing, they're not sowing, not just to collide, but to ministry in general. They're not spending their money and their time and resources. Um, and that really started to get to me on a spiritual level, not like a personal offense. Um, but, but I thought, what would our church right now look like if no one was giving? if all of the people uh, that are usually paid weren't able to show up because there was no giving. And in reality, this is what our church service would look like. Not that it's bad because still Sarah and uh, Matt let us in some awesome worship, which by the way, that was, we call her Sim, but that was Sarah. That was her first time uh, playing on our team. So it, we're, we're giving her a little clap of applause. <laughs> Love her so much. You didn't see her face. She's so funny. Wait, what was I talking about? Come on. So talking to millennials, and not just millennials, other folks as well, because I know I pick on millennials a bit, um, but but to see that there is such a great need, both in our house at Collide, we've been expressing this with the um, our, 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 our plan to raise funds over the next six months, and just every week encouraging people to give and tithe. And I think something hit me where I realized, oh, I think a lot of people who are within our church, and if you're a guest this morning, I'm going to talk a little bit like a papa bear and give us a little spanking. This is going to apply to you too, because this is not just about our house. This is about what God's doing around the world and the kingdom. My heart is concerned that many of us do not have an urgency to build as God's called us to build. Uh, I'm going to use our church as an example in a lot of our message today, but this is going to apply to several different areas within your life. Because in general, I'm talking about building the kingdom. This is bigger than our local church. This is bigger than our region. This is about a global takeover for the gospel and for the kingdom's sake. And with that said, I just want to kind of pose this question to every person who's watching. What are you doing to make ministry happen? No, no, no. I'm talking about more than just prayer. Because uh, I, I believe those the fervent effectual prayers availeth much of the righteous, you know? So I'm not undercutting prayer. But I'm saying when it comes to your finances, when it comes to your time, when it comes to your talent and your resources, what, where are you? And let's just be honest, since we're, we're not, we don't need to argue or fight, but can we just have an honest evaluation of what we're doing in our life? And can I ask you how much of your life has been built to build up the kingdom? And how much of your life has gone to just uh, making your life better? I think a great way to kind of see where you're at, even in your prayer life, if God were to ask you, uh, if God were to answer every single one of your prayers today, would it change the world? Or would it change just your world? I think because we think so self-focused and, and especially during times like COVID, you can go into this hyper-focus on self and your needs and what's going on in your life and all the things that you need. 
Um, and, and, and rightfully so, COVID freaked me out too. And I started thinking about my needs and stuff like that as well. But at the end of the day, we have to recenter ourselves to remember that this life is not about accumulating more stuff. It's not about becoming successful in the world's eyes. It's about establishing his kingdom. And with that said, I want to preach to you this morning from the subject, Rebuilding the Walls. Turn with me to Nehemiah chapter 1. And uh, I've got a little bit of a different setup today, so um, it is all good. I'm going to be looking up my Bible verses right here. We don't have a, usually we would have it on the screen, but as you see, we're doing a budgetless service. Um, Nehemiah chapter 1, we're going to read a few verses. I'm using Matt's computer, so forgive me if I'm slow. He has a sophisticated laptop. It's above my pay grade. All right, Nehemiah chapter 1. I'm going to kind of skip through some verses, but let's look at Nehemiah, and I'm reading from the New King James Version if you want to follow along. Uh, chapter 1, verse 1. The words of Nehemiah, the son of... Oh, there goes my eyes again. Uh, the son of that guy. It came to pass in the month of uh, Chislev, in the 20th year, as I was in Shushan... <laughs> My tongue is getting very tired. <laughs> Here we go. Uh, the Citadel, verse 2. Hopefully this will get easier. Uh, that Hanani, one of my brethren, came with me from Judah, and I asked them concerning the Jews who had escaped, uh, who had survived the captivity, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the survivors who are left from the captivity of the, in the province are there in great distress and reproach. The wall of Jerusalem is also broken down. And its gates are burned with fire. Let's stop for just a second. And we're going to be a little bit more Bible study style uh, this morning. But let me tell you what's happening since I kind of messed up and got tongue-tied there. Uh, Nehemiah has been born into, uh, he's, an Israel, he's an Israelite, and he's been born into captivity. Babylon has taken captive Israel, and some of them have had a chance to escape. And he runs into a couple of old buddies of his, and he's saying, hey, man, how's Israel doing? Now, mind you, Israel has been under Babylonian rule by this time, well over 100 years, I think somewhere around 120 years. And so Nehemiah doesn't even know what it feels like to be a citizen who is free. He's got no past experience that we know of with Jerusalem or ever having visited. Um, but he, he understands who he is, his identity. He knows who his God is. And so he's concerned about the things that concern the Lord. Now, I, I say this with an emphatic uh, point here, that the wall on a personal level had nothing to do with Nehemiah. As a matter of fact, he was, we're going to find out in a bit, the king's cupbearer, and he had life made. But because he loved the Lord, he had a burden for the things that God had a burden for. Now, why is this important? When Nehemiah asks his uh, friends how Jerusalem's doing and how Israel's doing, he's saying, the, the friends start telling him, yeah, we, a few of us got out and things are going, um, like, they're distressed, they're, it's not going well. And then Nehemiah uh, hears from his friends, not only are the Israelites not doing well, but the wall and the city, uh, the temple, they're not doing well either. Now that's important because a lot of times God would use the natural condition and state of Jerusalem and its captivity to speak to the spiritual place that Israel was at. And we see that here in, look at verse 3. It says, And they said to me, the survivors who are left from the captivity in the province are there in great distress and reproach. Now, he's, he's describing the children of Israel. They're there, they're in great distress, and they're in great reproach. Look at that last sentence there. The wall of Jerusalem is also broken down. There's a prophetic relationship between the place of Jerusalem and Israel. And, he's, he, and I think this is important for us to realize because what we don't understand is that as we begin to rebuild, and part of why I'm going into this word is because of the prophetic word that the Lord gave me last uh, week where he said that we were going to redig old wells. We were gonna, and, I, and I interpret that to mean that God is wanting to restore some of the old ways of doing things in our Christendom. Now, I know we've gotten sophisticated, and if you follow our messages, you can tell we believe in emotional intelligence. But at the end of the day, there are some things that only the Holy Spirit can do. And I think we've begun to get dependent on what we can do uh, because it's too scary to take a risk and wait on God to do what he wants to do. But I think what God wants to do, as, at least within our community here at Collide City Church, is he's teaching us that the old ways were good enough for our forefathers, and they're going to be good enough for us. 
that yeah, we need to uh, practice emotional intelligence, find out your strength finders, know your Enneagram number, but make sure you have a prayer life. Make sure you know how to fast. Make sure you know how to seek the Lord because I don't care how emotionally intelligent you get, how successful you get in the world, there are some things that only God can do, all right? So that's part of why we're digging into this because I think our generation needs to know what it feels like. Like our generation doesn't even know what it's like to have all night prayer meetings. They don't know what it's like to go out on the streets and do evangelism. And these are the ways that we were raised up. And there's something, obviously we, we, we change method and we don't change message. But what concerns me is that this generation has lost heart for the things that concern the Lord. We've gotten what I call oftentimes implosive, where all we're consumed about is our finances, our stuff, what's going on with our lives. And I love to use Nehemiah as our backdrop for today because he has no evident reason to want to go back to Jerusalem and to restore it until he hears his friends begin to tell him that not only the children of Israel are in distress, uh, which he is one, though he's not in distress, but also the Temple Mount or, or the Jerusalem and the wall there has been broken down as well. And I want you to see Nehemiah's response. Look at verse four. So it was when I, Nehemiah, heard these words that I sat down and what did I do? I wept, I mourned for many days, I was fasting and praying before the Lord God of heaven. Jump down to the bottom verse, Look at verse 11. Here's what Nehemiah says. He says, Oh Lord, I pray, please let your, please let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who desire to fear your name and let your servant prosper this day, I pray, and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Now, let me explain that and catch us up um, on what Nehemiah is praying. Now, Nehemiah, Nehemiah is the cupbearer for the king at that time. Again, remember, they've been, as uh, Israel's been in captivity to the Babylonian army for nearly 120 years. Now, it's important that you understand the dynamic of Nehemiah's relationship to the king. Uh, he's probably one of the most trusted allies in the nation. He is the cupbearer. What's the, the reason behind that? So obviously people always wanted to kill kings and all that stuff. And so they would try to poison them. That was one of the ways. And so the job of the cupbearer was actually to taste the food for the king, to drink his cup first. And we were just going to check. Okay, you didn't die? Okay, it's good for the king to eat, right? Um, and that was the whole job of a cupbearer. It was a very normal thing or a normal practice in the age of kings and kingdoms. Uh, with that said, in order to be a king, uh, a, a cupbearer in the kind of Persian army there, you had to be good looking. Uh, you had to be well-versed in politics. You had to be worldly, meaning not in the church sense, but worldly in the sense of well-culture. Um, so we can imagine that Nehemiah is a good-looking, well-paid uh, he, he was supposed, uh, a cupbearer would have to be well-loved and well-liked. And so, you know, he's the guy that every mom wants their daughter to marry. He's good looking. He's like me. Okay, not one amen. All right. Um, I thought I'd get at least a half an amen. Maybe in the chats, I'm sure love is clowning me right now. Um, but I, I paint that picture so that you understand his, um, his there, there's a certain privilege that he walks in. But not only that, there's a certain responsibility that he walks in. And because of that, he's super trusted by the king. But understand that a cupbearer's job, everybody's job within that kingdom was to keep the king happy, to keep the king uh, pleasurable. And so you weren't allowed to be sad around the king. And that's going to mean something to us in just a moment. You weren't allowed to be uh, negative around the king. You had to be gleeful and happy. But here Nehemiah is having to go back to his job as a cupbearer, but he's distraught. Have you ever, for those of us who, who really do seek the Lord and we have a real relationship with God, we understand what it's like to be Nehemiah. We, we understand the pull of, of having a bigger call that we know God's called us to, but we're stuck in a dead-end job. It may be a great job, but, but there's a, a, a friction happening because you know God's calling you for this, but you're stuck in this. What do you do? Here's what Nehemiah did. He goes back, back to his regular job. He doesn't make a big fuss about Israel, but I love how the Bible says, it says that he went back and the scriptures say that he normally would not be sad in front of the king, but this day his heart was distraught. And the king looks at him and says, what's the matter, Nehemiah? Now you have to understand, stop, favor right there. It was not normal for a king to care about his servants. 
it wasn't normal for him to look at Nehemiah and go, oh man, you're sad, how was your day? Like, tell me about it. He's not a therapist, he's a freaking king, right? What would have been right for the king to do was to look at Nehemiah and say, uh, dismiss him at the least, dismiss him from his presence, or actually kill him. You remember the story of Esther and how concerned and scared she was to go in front of the king? Because if you went to the king and you did even the slightest thing wrong or you made the wrong movement, off with your head. There was no mercy in that area because it was all about the king. So for Nehemiah to come into the king's presence and display even his distraught emotions, um, he, he knew that that was a death sentence. Yet God used his emotions and his display of emotion. And I'm going to dive into that in a moment. He used his display of emotions uh, to bring favor. Now, in order to do what God's called you to do, you're going to have to remember that you can't do it alone and you're going to need the favor of God. And when I say favor of God, I'm not just talking about a couple friends who like you. I'm talking about God's going to work out some things where you don't have to toil. You don't have to make it happen. God's going to work behind the scenes. A couple of weeks ago, we talked about the Christmas story. And I mentioned to you how many things were happening behind the scenes for God to make that one moment of his birth happen. The same is true with your destiny and your purpose, that the scripture says the heart of the king is actually in the hand of the Lord and he guides it to and fro where he wants it to be. So you may be in a position where you feel discouraged because your boss doesn't see you or maybe your pastor is not acknowledging your gifts or your small group leader is not seeing who you really are. Here's, here's the good news is that God knows his timing for your life. He knows his purpose for your life and you don't have to promote yourself. God will find ways to show you favor. God used Nehemiah's sad face to open up a door for breakthrough for all of Israel. It is strange to me how God moves. But one thing I've learned in the 34 years of living and the 20 years of doing ministry, I've learned this, that when I can't trace him, I gotta lean on trusting him. There are moments where I don't understand how God's going to work it out. I don't know how he's going to make a way. If I were Nehemiah, I, I think all I think is I'm distraught. Because remember, Nehemiah's a cupbearer. He's not even a carpenter. He's not a mechanic. He's not a fixer like that. And all I, could, all I would be thinking is how overwhelmed I would be in that moment. But there must have been something in Nehemiah where he knew his God well enough. Where he, he could say to himself, I don't know when things are going to change or when God's going to use me. But I'm ready for when he wants to use me. And it's not motivated by his own purpose. It's not his own desires for self-fulfillment. It's because he's gotten a burden for what breaks the heart of God. And what breaks the heart of God, it ought to break our heart. It ought to break our heart to see the condition of the church today. It, it ought to break our heart to see the condition of our nation today. No, no, no. It, it shouldn't enrage you. It shouldn't make you angry. It should give you a burden and break your heart. And if you've gotten angry without getting a burden, you've not gotten the heart of Christ. It's not, it's okay to get angry. I'm not, that's not what I'm saying. But I'm saying a lot of us are getting angry at the condition of our life, the condition of our nation, the condition of our church, and we're not stopping to ask God for his heart. Nehemiah displays emotions and God uses that to bring favor. And the king says, what's on your heart? And um, Nehemiah says, explains to him the deal with the rebuilding of the wall and his desire to rebuild the wall. But here's what I've got to let you know. The king had already shut down one attempt of the children of Israel trying to build the wall. Nehemiah wasn't the first one with the idea. Uh, he was just the one in the position to move things. So Nehemiah's got that in the back of his head too, that he's thinking, you know, the king's already shut this plan down once. And here I go, I'm being emotional and sad and all this kind of stuff. And he wants to ask me what I want. And Nehemiah has the guts, the courage, and the boldness to come to the king and to say, here's what's on my heart. Some of, um, let me say this gently, because this is attacking. Some of you are upset about problems that you won't discuss. <laughs> That's how I put it. That's the nicest way I can put it. What do I mean by that? There's a lot of us who internalize a lot of things and we never talk a lot of things out. And so things don't get done. And so we allow our fears and our overthinking to actually paralyze us from moving. Now I feel the anointing on this, so I'm gonna make you mad and say it again. Many of us overthink and we have a lot of questions and that's not a bad thing. Questions are great. You wanna be able to think and process, but are you allowing that to paralyze you from actually doing something for the Lord? Are you thinking yourself out of the courage that is required for you to rebuild God's wall in your life? Now, when I say rebuild the wall, I'm, I'm talking about the kingdom of God. And sometimes the kingdom, <clears throat> you, you know, you saw Sarah um, 
<laughs> leading worship with Matt in the in the background, and she's actually a nurse, and they're prepping to work with COVID patients. You know what that is? That's rebuilding a wall. Rebuilding the wall doesn't mean just planting a church. It doesn't mean just being a missionary overseas. Um, your part of the wall might look different, and I'll dive into that in just a moment. But nonetheless, you've got to have an urgency and a passion for what God has a heart for. And here, Nehemiah decides that I'm just going to share with the king everything that's on my heart and mind. I'm not going to internalize it. I'm not going to overthink it. I'm just going to see where the chips fall, right? Now, I'll give you this benefit. I'm an underthinker. Now, I'm surrounded on our staff with overthinkers, and I'm an underthinker. And we need both gifts, right? We Sometimes we just need the courage to go um, because we can't think ourselves out of the breakthrough. But then at other times, we do need to overthink and process. But we can't allow that to actually paralyze us from doing. Though Nehemiah is distressed, though he's saddened, he doesn't let that processing overwhelm him from being able to speak up for his God and for his people. And so he boldly tells the king again, he's like, I've just got a heart to rebuild the wall. And, and really, I think what his heart is that, that this symbol is a rebuilding of the children of Israel. Can I ask you where your heart is this morning? Do you care about the things that God cares about? Or is your heart broken by the things that break his? Now, if so, are you done thinking about it? Are you willing to do something about it? I meet so many Christians who want to do something great for God. And that's great. I love the, the desire that's there. But at the end of the day, it has to move past just wanting and desiring. And we've got to actually do. Let me kind of fast forward because i got a few minutes here. I hope this is making sense for you guys this morning. Because I, I think the goal of this for me is to get you moving. Like COVID is not a valid enough excuse for you not to engage. Not just talking in terms with our church. I'm talking about with the kingdom, guys. What, what have you done? And some of you have. Like I know Gina and Anthony are watching right now. And they've been talking to me about the ministry that they've been doing and the people that they've been blessing and even the people they, they've been mentoring. You know, we've got the Max and they've been, uh, uh, you know, secretly blessing families with food and care packages and different things. Because there are some folks in our community who are not going to let the season that we're in the distraught feeling that we feel, we're not going to let that paralyze us from making sacrifices to rebuild the wall. Again, when I say rebuild the wall, we're talking about the kingdom, that we want to establish, reestablish the kingdom of God. All right, let me fast forward through some of these things. Now, there's a couple of things that I noticed with Nehemiah as he's pursuing the rebuilding of the wall, and I've got seven and a half minutes to share this with you. Number one, I realized that he prayed. Nehemiah's initial response, and I feel the anointing on this, to his friends telling him the condition of Israel is not to tweet. It's not to update his Facebook. His first response is not to call his pastor or his prayer partner. I'm talking about his first response. His first response is to pray. In the day of trouble, what's your first response? Because I, I know this is going to hurt and you're not going to like this and you're going to want to shake your head at me. But more often than not, our first response to crisis shows where our heart is and where it's fixed in our faith. So I find a lot of times, because people don't have the deep walk with God that they should have, they lean and depend on friendships and relationships and understand we're meant to walk with each other. I'm gonna show you that in a minute. But there, there is a side of this walk with Christ where there are times where we walk alone. Not alone in the sense that Christ is not there, but we walk alone, separated from people. And I think sometimes we can use our what we're experiencing, the struggles, the, the hurt, and our first response is to call a friend or to talk to someone. And that's great, get there. But I don't want that to be my first response. I want my first response to be to get on my knees and to say, Lord, how do I deal with this? You know, I had a lot of phone calls this, I think it was this last week, where we, there were just all kinds of issues and putting out fires because we're a church plant in COVID. And so things are always going wrong. Things are always, you know, going awry. And so just putting out a lot of fires. And I found myself uh, becoming overwhelmed, even tired because I had become so reactive in trying to fix it on my own strength that I had forgotten how to rest. Look at Psalms uh, chapter 127. Let me look it up on my computer or on his fancy computer. Psalm 127. And we're going to read two verses, verse one and verse two. One of my, I grew up with the scripture. I love this scripture. And here's what it says. It says, unless the Lord builds the house, they that labor, labor in vain. Unless the Lord guards the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is vain for you to rise up early, to sit up late, to eat the bread of sorrows. For so, uh, 
for so he gives his beloved sleep. Now, if you're a 2020 question, that kind of hurts your feelings. Because God seems a bit unempathetic. Like, he, he doesn't seem to care about the fact that we've been trying to build this house and we're tired. He doesn't seem to care about the fact that we've been in sorrow. But he really does care. The, one of the examples that I used to that I use to kind of share my perspective on how I think God deals with our kind of troublesome moments, because he's okay with us processing and going through tough times, and many of us have gone through that, but I don't ever believe that fear, um, struggle, pain is ever meant to paralyze the believer. Not even sorrow is meant to paralyze the believer. How do I know that? When I look at Jesus, he comes up to the tomb of Lazarus, and the shortest verse in the Bible, it says that he wept. But then after he wept, he started doing stuff. Like, but the confusion for me as I read the text here is that it seems like God in verse uh, in verse 2 of Psalm 127, it almost seems like God doesn't care about my sorrow. And that's not what it is. Here's what I've learned. Life is going to hit you every single week. You're going to have something hit you every single week. It might not be major, but something's going to get you, right? We cannot allow the enemy to cause us to burn out because we're toiling in our own strength. We've got to develop personal devotion with the Lord so that we don't react in our own strength, so that I don't try to fix problems with my own strength. Now, he's going to use my strength. Hear me out, because you can't just sit on your couch and go, Alibaba, 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 and God's going to use. No, you got to actually move and do something. But he, I think what God's saying here is don't be a, a captive to your emotional disposition. That there's still destiny, there's still purpose that's meant to have. So when we read verses 1 and 2, it's not that God is saying, I don't care about your labor. I don't care about uh, you getting up early and praying because he even puts that there. I don't care about you. It's not that. He's saying, if you do all of that, not empowered by the working of the Spirit, not moved by the Spirit, your labor is in vain. But I'm concerned that many of us haven't even gotten to the place of prayer where we can even see that in our own lives. A lot of us can't even see the striving. And so we're, we're burnt out and we're tired and we're blaming it on our wife. <laughs> we're blaming it on our boss, blaming it on our pastor. We're blaming it on the deacon. We're blaming it on everyone else. And here's the thing. I don't control your emotions. You do. And at some point you have to lay even your emotions as hurt as you feel. But you know why it's hard to lay down those emotions? Because it's hard to give up um, unhealthy emotions that you feel entitled to have. You know how many times I feel entitled to offense? How many times people say crazy stuff to me and I feel entitled? The scripture doesn't give me room to be entitled. It tells me even in the worst case that I'm called to lay things down. The point, I, I, let me just put it here, because apart from prayer, we will have no self-control. We will, um, how do I want to say this? We will, it, it's like what it says, the double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. We just go back and forth. What I'm finding is that prayer and personal devotion keeps me from burnout. There's two things that I, I find keeps people burnt out. It's usually a lack of a personal devotion and a lack of a healthy community. It, it usually has very little to do with work or with, sometimes it's that and you've got physical overload, but the majority of the time I'm finding that it's community or a prayer life. With this generation, because they love hanging out and understand hanging out is different from community, but that's another message. What I'm concerned about is that we don't lean on the power of prayer. And because we don't lean on the power of prayer, everybody's laboring in their own force um, and then getting frustrated when it doesn't work out. Nehemiah's first response when he hears about the collapse of the wall is that he prays. The second thing he does is the Bible says that he mourns. Look at Jeremiah chapter 9, verse 1. And how much time do I have? I have literally 58 seconds, which means that I'm not going to be done in 58 seconds. <laughs> but I'm going to be done soon. Jeremiah 9. And look at verse, I think it's verse 1 if I remember. Yeah, verse 1. Simple verse. It says, Oh, that my head were waters and my eyes a fountain of tears, that I may weep day and night for the slain of the daughter of my people. Here again is we have uh, uh, Jeremiah, similar to Nehemiah, with a burden for God's people. And he prays an interesting prayer that I didn't know was legal to pray in the kingdom. He prays for tears. He prays for an emotional response to something he sees in the natural. I didn't know that that was a legal prayer to pray until I realized that God doesn't want to get rid of my emotions. He wants to redeem them. 
if Nehemiah didn't have a healthy sense of being able to express sadness and he had to walk around his whole life faking it like he was happy, the king would have never noticed that there was an issue and there would have never been an opportunity for him to be able to explain what was on his heart. And I am concerned that many of us, we internalize and we're holding things back because we're afraid of being too much. We're afraid of not being enough. But can I tell you something? God wants to use your emotional passion even in your destiny. It's not enough for you just to pray. You've got to have a heart for the ones that you're praying for. I'm going to use this example, um, and I know this is kind of a, a, a sensitive one, so I'm going to be careful as I share about it, but um, I hate abortion from the bottom of my heart. I believe that uh, abortion is wrong. Um, but as I say that, I know the context in which I say it, that in the culture that we live in, that sounds and feels very empathetic. That's why I'm careful on how I share about abortion and I talk about it. I think it was about maybe seven, eight years now, I had a well-known friend of mine give me a call and she had gotten pregnant. And in getting pregnant, she was weeping on the phone because she didn't know what she was gonna do. Her life was quote unquote over. And she said to me, she says, I'm just gonna get an abortion. And I just remember weeping, just crying. And I wasn't crying because she was just gonna get the abortion and I hate abortion, that wasn't it. I could feel her pain. I, I could feel her suffering. And it shocks me how many Christians run away from those emotions. We have to learn how to sit empathetically with the hurting and the broken because God is asking us to move from a place of compassion, not a place of self-fulfillment. Did you hear what I said? The people that God's called you to minister to, because I know a lot of us, we, we, we want to preach. We just don't like people. So how are you going to minister to people you don't have a heart for? And even in the in the reason I told this specific story it's because I know as Christians, we're considered in this culture right-wing, conservative, and all that stuff. And I'm probably triggering so many of you right now. I don't mean to. I'm just trying to make a godly point here. But I think what saddens me is that when I hear my Christian brothers and sisters talk about abortion, I hear them talk about it with so little empathy, um, so little heart about the brokenness of those who are having to have abortions. And so when they talk about abortions, it's almost as if they think people are getting abortions like it's candy or like it's you know something that's desired. And I think it's because we don't have empathy. And how can you have empathy when you don't have pro proximity? One more time. How can you have empathy when you don't have proximity? It's, it's easy to make a judgment on people you don't love. It's easy to, um, that family member that you don't really talk to just Christmas and Easter and just rip them apart and get so upset because you haven't sat in that space to be empathetic and to see where they're coming from. One of the things I've said, even in our ministry amongst our leaders from the get, I said, we need to get so spiritually and emotionally healthy that when broken people come in, they don't trigger us, um, but they stir us, they move us. And, and I want to point out that not only did Nehemiah pray, but he also mourned, or excuse me, he, uh, yeah, he mourned here, that he showed emotions. And then when we jump over to Jeremiah, Jeremiah makes it now biblically legal for us to pray for those emotions. My whole Christian life, especially in my young life, I was always told, don't serve God with your emotions. And it was almost made as if the devil was the only one who could do anything with your emotions until I realized that God wants to redeem those. And so maybe you've been afraid to express emotion. So even in worship, it's like, I watch some of you, it's like, and part of that is because this world has told us we're too much and we're not enough. And I'm going to tell you, part of your purpose and your calling is wrapped up in your ability to actually feel what God feels. All right, let me rush through this. Give me five more minutes and we'll be done. Not only did he pray, not only did he mourn, but he actually moved. Now, I know people who are great at praying. I know people who are great at compassion. But some of those same people don't do anything to change the things that are burdening their heart. I brought up abortion partly to give an illustration for the last point I was sharing a minute ago, but also in this area, that one of the things that breaks my heart is the condition of the foster care system um, I found a statistic that said if every church in America adopted one child, there would be no orphans in America. I prayed about the ending of abortion. I've wept over it. I, I've been in a, a, the San Francisco morgue where I've literally seen babies in, in the little containers that they put them in. I, I, I've wept over this thing. But I have such a conviction that it's not enough for me to pray. It's not enough for me to emote and to feel and to empathize. I want to actually move and do something. So for me, what that looks like is next year, if everything works out as it should, which after 2020, I don't know. <laughs> 
But for me, what it looks like is adopting. Like I want to foster and I want to adopt. Now, did I have a thoughts like, oh, you're single, you're not rich. Yeah, I have all those thoughts, but I'm not gonna allow it to paralyze me from things that I know that God has called me to do. Now for me, it's adoption. And I think even for some of you, it is. I know we have a few couples who are working through the foster care system right now to try to adopt. So I, I know that may be some of your hearts, but is there something that you've been burdened to buy, whether it be the building of this church, the building of the local church, at some point, you got to move. And here's what we say. And I, I asked the guys, is it Matthew 25? Is that words? Okay. I was trying to, I was thinking about praying about an example all week. And I finally got it right before we turned the cameras on. And I was trying to think like, how can I talk to my overthinkers? And this is specifically to the people who you think so much about every single detail that it actually paralyzes you. Because I actually like overthinkers as long as they want to be productive and not just think, right? Because I'm an underthinker, so I need their help. With that being said... Um, I think about the story of the talents where the master gives everybody a, a different amount of talents and they hide them in, uh, one guy hides them under the ground, excuse me, one guy hides them under the ground and the other guys make investments and make more off of their money. The master comes back and he's upset with the guy who hid the coin. And I almost feel bad for the servant because the servant says, master, I, I just had your interest in, in mind. I was hiding it so that I wouldn't lose your money because I know that you're a hard man. And that's where I had to stop. It was his perspective of his master that kept him bound from being able to do something great for the master. And I think that that's a perfect picture for how many of us are in the kingdom. That we have this theology that God is hard, that God is a tough God, and that if we mess up, if we, if we make mistakes, then he's ready to slam us. And can I just say this to give you breakthrough? God is not your parents. God's not your pastor who hurt you. God's not that loved one who left you. He's not that mentor who is just too tough on you. God is compassionate. He sees what you're going through. He knows what you're going through. But if you don't have a right perspective of his heart, you'll never move appropriately with the father. Because this servant believed his master to be a hard man, he allowed that to paralyze him from ever investing and in doing anything great. And I say this specifically because not all of our church, but I know many of you, you've allowed your overthinking about the issues and the bigness of it to stop you. And so how does it play into what we're doing today and the discussion that we're having? You know, we need help building this church at the end of the day. You know, God called me and I feel almost like a Nehemiah in some ways, because here's the deal. Look at Nehemiah chapter four, verse six. I won't turn there for the sake of time, but Nehemiah chapter four, verse six was my last verse. And you realize that when they went back, when Nehemiah went back to Israel, they rebuilt the wall in 52 days. Like they put that sucker up quick. They had haters. And if I had more time, I would go into that because with every elevation comes uh, haters and, and people who don't want you to succeed. But Nehemiah rebuilt the wall in 52 days. And, and in chapter four, verse six, I love this phrase. It says that they completed the wall, dot, 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 dot. In the last part, here's what it says, because the people had a mind to work. I think there's a couple of myths and I closed my iPad thinking I was done, but I, I gotta tell you these few myths. There are three things that I think um, stop us from really being able to do something great. And I wanna kind of make this more poignant to our community and to our fellowship here at Collide. Do you wanna rebuild the kingdom? So I, I mean that in terms of our local church. Do you, do you want to pour into what God's doing here at Collide? Your church, and I'm talking to family right now. This is your church. If that's the case, have you been praying? Have you been asking God for your pastor's heart or the heart of our community, his heart for our community? And then thirdly, have you been doing anything? Have you been giving? Have you been sowing? Have you been tithing? Or um, have you been volunteering? There's areas where you can volunteer. And I, and I know what many of us say, man, they don't need me or... Or what if this and what if that? And we allow all of that to paralyze us from doing what God's called us to do to rebuild the kingdom. I think there's three things that we need to be aware of as we address this. Number one, you can't do it alone. As I was going over with Nehemiah, I, you know I hate being dependent on other people. I hate, I hate asking for help. But there's no way we can do what God's calling us to do alone. And I wanna just make one point it's important that you understand we were never called to be hyper-dependent and we were never called to be hyper-independent. 
I think a lot of us have this mindset of, I can do it by myself. And sometimes it doesn't look like big ego. Sometimes it looks like, man, I just don't want to burden other people, so I'll just do it by myself. Nonetheless, you were not called to be independent, nor were you called to be dependent. You were called to be interdependent. It's the choice that you make to live within community. Now, when we look at the story of Nehemiah, Nehemiah didn't rebuild the wall in 52 days. As a matter of fact, it lists off people who are accomplishing things, and it never even mentions Nehemiah because it's not even about him. It's about God using him to get the job done. But you have to know that God's not called you to do it alone. Some of you are frustrated because you're trying to start the business by yourself. Go find somebody to mentor you. Ask a friend who started a business. Maybe they failed. Get some advice from them. That's what I did when it came to this church because I didn't want to do this alone. Uh, the next thing is that salvation is free. It's the kingdom that will cost you. See, when you come into the kingdom, it's completely free. There's no charge for salvation. But when it comes to participating in the kingdom, and, and Jesus lets us know, very few will get to engage in the kingdom because it requires sacrifice. As a matter of fact, he tells one story and he says a man sells a, a, a whole field for the one pearl, that this kingdom is costly, that there's some dying to the flesh. There's a price that you have to pay. I know a lot of people can look at me and the preaching and, and the traveling and they go, oh man, I just want that. But do you want to pay the price? I had a young man come to me and say, Pastor Dale, I just want a double portion of your anointing. So I laid my hands on his head and I was like, Lord, I just pray he'll be homeless for two years instead of one. That his family will not let him come to Christmas and Thanksgiving for four years instead of two. That his church will turn their back on him for 10 years or for 20 years instead of 10. And I'm laying my hands and he's just like, what's going on here? I was like, you want double the anointing, but not double of the, the problems that I had to go through to get that anointing. See, the Bible says if we suffer with Christ, we will reign with Christ. I say that because it's going to cost you something to get the kingdom. If you want to see blinded eyes open, it's going to require you to learn how to fast. More than that, just one little meal that you do to keep it easy on yourself. No, no, we want to establish the kingdom. And then the last thing is, and this addresses the idea that God is hard and worshiping y'all. Okay, we'll just end it over here. His word says that his burdens are not hard. His burdens are light. I was sharing this with somebody this week because I was telling them all that I'm having to do personally with the church. Um, and our whole team's like working their butt off, uh, paid and unpaid, to make church happen for many of you. Um, and somebody was asking me about that and they responded and they said, man, I just could never do that. And I asked them about their job and they, it's like some paperwork kind of job and they love it. And I was like, I could never do that. Here's the problem. When we compare our lives to other people's lives, we forget to compare our grace with other people's grace. You do not have grace for another's race. And that's why it feels heavy because we've been trying to attain our own thing. And a lot of it is birthed out of what we see in other people. And so we desire that thing. But if what you're carrying is not light, it's not the burden of Christ. So even though I'm doing a lot of work, even though I have a lot of sleepless nights, I'm, I'm working. And I, the thing is, I love it. It's not complaining. It's joy. Why? Because it's the burden he's given me. If Nehemiah had stayed with the king and just been a cupbearer for the rest of his life, God bless him and his life would have gone well. But we, we would have never known him. We would have never heard his story. It was because he was able to take a risk to see that the kingdom is in trouble. And I want to be a part of rebuilding the wall. I want to say as a part of the universal body, we're in trouble and we need folks to help rebuild the walls. We need Nehemiahs who will put down the king's cup and, and the prestige of trying to kill it before you're 30 and get into Forbes before you're 40. It's like, no, no, no. That's, that's great. But it's only a conduit so that I could rebuild the wall. So can I ask you this morning as we close, is there an area in this church you're supposed to be serving? I know, I know, but I don't know anybody. Yeah, yeah. But is there an area you're supposed to be committed to? Because it's time to rebuild the wall. Have you been giving? Ugh, Pastor Dale, you don't understand. Financially, things are going rough in my 401k plan and my IRS. And I got all these issues. I said IRS, I meant IRA. It's like, it's like I got all these things. I, 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 I get all that. But when we become self-focused, that's when we get depressed because we were never meant to make our lives about us. He makes his life about us. He takes care of us. Our life was meant to be poured out to others. So I want to ask you, is there an area that you're supposed to be serving in this church? Is there an area where you can be giving that you're not giving? I don't know if I can tell. Just trust him in this area. Because if not, I, I, I just want to tell you, at the end of the day, this is what ministry looks like. When there's no finances, there's no giving, there's no one serving. Um, and, but trust, this is still good ministry. 
And we're still gonna make this happen. It'll, it'll just make it harder. It'll make things slower. And I think what, wants to, what God wants to do is expedite the work he's doing in this house. But it requires you being like Nehemiah and saying, I'm willing to go rebuild the wall. Now, I don't know what part of the wall your part is. Maybe your part's on the worship team. Maybe your part's in the media team. Maybe your part's preaching or teaching. Maybe your part's working with children or cleaning toilets. Maybe you don't know what your part is. And this message was for you to wake up and, and to get engaged so that in community you can find your part. Nonetheless, there are some walls that you're called to rebuild. There are some wells that you're called to redig. And I mean spiritually. I'm not just talking about the, the things on this earth. I want to do things that 100 years from now will still matter. Does that make sense? Like I want to accomplish some things on this earth that will still matter a hundred years from now because I think that's kingdom work. For those of you in our church who are influencers, for those of you who have maybe higher paying jobs, these careers where you have more influence, have you have you gotten comfortable being the king's cupbearer? It's not a bad thing. It's not a bad position. But what are you using it for? Are you using your equity in the kingdom, your Nehemiah's privilege in the kingdom? to make things better for God's people, to build up his kingdom, or is it just to build up yours? Genesis chapter 11 says the Tower of Babel, they were trying to make their name great, and so God destroyed the tower. But in Genesis chapter 12, the very next chapter, God tells Abraham, who's then Abram, I'm gonna make your name great. And I'm thinking, I thought it's bad to be great. <laughs> like you just wiped out a whole bunch of people and created new languages. and. A chapter ago for people because they were trying to make their name great and here's what the Lord told me the difference between Genesis 11 and Genesis 12 it's not about you being great God doesn't mind you being great who's making you great who's put you in that position Nehemiah he wants you to remember how you got that influence how you got that prestige I was talking to one of our worship leaders I think a week or two ago and I was um, telling him I said man I'm pretty sure our worship team is going to be famous um, so we need to prepare for that and kind of looked at me like, no, 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 we don't want to be famous because we've been taught fame is like a bad thing because people have used fame poorly. But I, I looked at them and I was like, why don't you want to be famous? And she started listing off all the bad stuff. And I was like, well, here's all the amazing things you could do for God if you had more influence, if you had more of a platform. And her brain kind of was like, oh, that's true. I've never seen it that way. What you have and who you are is not a bad thing. The position God's given you. The question becomes, is God making you great? And is your desire... God's desire? Do you have a desire to rebuild what he's called you to rebuild? Now, I went way longer than I meant to, but that's to be expected. Nonetheless, here's my heart, church, as, as your pastor, um, as the one God's called with a vision for this house. Our team's been real strained. There's a lot of work, even just to get these videos done and um, to make a live worship and stuff work for you guys. <clears throat> On top of trying to raise funds to pastor folks, who, you don't even see Andrew Min with us today because he's part of the paid staff. And so I wanted to have a whole service where there's no finances because this is what it would look like and this is how it would be if there were no one giving. We're grateful for those of you who have been faithful, but we need more of you to step up, not just financially in your prayer life. We need many of you to intercede for the direction that God's taking us. And I know it's weird because <clears throat> we're not in the same building, but I promise you, as soon as COVID lifts and we're back together, because we're preparing well, we're gonna be able to kind of ascend quickly. And so because of that, I need many of you to start praying for us. So start asking God, if you don't have a burden for your pastor, you don't have a burden for your church, start praying, Lord, give me a burden. Jeremiah 9, chapter, uh, chapter 9, verse one. Give me tears, I wanna weep for the hurting in our community. Show me how I can be a blessing to somebody else, you know? So with that said, if you want to find a place here at this church where you want to serve, because maybe you, you've just kind of been stuck and paralyzed in the house and been making up excuses as to why you can't do anything for God in this season, we got something for you. It may not be the best or craziest or fanciest thing, but it's a brick in the wall. And if you're looking for your place at the wall to serve in the kingdom, we got you. Some of you are convicted in the area of giving. Go ahead and start giving. Be a blessing in that area. But at the end of the day, I just want to build the kingdom. I don't, I have no energy for church life and work. I have no energy for the red tape that comes with religious, you know, services. But I do have a heart to see God's people healed and whole. And that's my driving force. That's what gives me joy. That's what changes Nehemiah's uh, expression into celebration because he was able to accomplish the rebuilding and the restoration of Israel in that moment. God, I thank you that in this season we have so many reasons to not be focused on you and your work. 
But I thank you that, Lord, you've been keeping our eyes like a flint set on you. Lord, even in my heart, you've been continuing to reset me so that I always remember what, what it is we're doing and why it is we're doing. I want to pray for first our community that's watching, Lord, Collide City Church. God, I pray for every person who feels uh, at a place of frustration where things aren't working out. Lord, show them their place in the kingdom, the place where they're supposed to rebuild. And God, for those who have dreams and visions for rebuilding, whether it's an orphanage or missions or a business, whatever it is, Lord, and they just need the favor of the Lord. God, would you pour out favor, pour out blueprints, and I even sense this for many of you because um, it was true in my life and in our ministry. God's going to show you different ways to do things. It's going to be abnormal how God uses you. Lord, I just pray that you give us an ear to hear you, to hear how you're speaking to us to develop what you called us to develop. God, for some, it's going to be a vocational ministry. For others, it's going to be a job or a career, a, a nonprofit, but whatever it is, Whatever you've called us to rebuild, I pray, God, that you would give us the grace and the urgency, the passion, the empathy to make it happen, God. There's so much that needs to be done, and I'm, my heart is burdened that the people of God don't have a burden. But Lord, would you pour out a burden on us, right? Right there as you're watching, right in your room, just put your hand over your heart, and I want you to make that your prayer. Say, Lord, give me a burden for what breaks your heart. And you're gonna be surprised. God's gonna speak to you about things that weren't even on your heart before. I was prophesying to a girl in Korea and I called her out and I said, the Lord's about to give you a heart for orphans in Africa and I see you holding babies with HIV and I see the Lord using you in that area. And she came up to me and she said, Pastor Doe, I have no heart for orphans. And I said, well, that's what the Lord gave me. About a year or two later, she messaged me on Facebook and she said, you're not gonna believe this. I just finished my um, first mission trip to Africa working with kids and the word was fulfilled and I love it because God, you've given us grace for our race. So Lord, as we again ask for a burden, we don't think about our own skill sets. We don't think about our own capacity. We just ask you, give us your burden this morning for the brokenness in society, the brokenness in our church, the brokenness in our churches. Give the person watching right now, not just Pastor Dale, give that person watching right now, give them a burden. I pray right now, give them a burden, Lord. And Lord, I thank you for what you're about to do through Collide, that we're about to... Um, Rebuild the wall, God. Redig the wells. I just pray for more Nehemiahs, God. More people who are willing to make the sacrifice to build as you've called us to build. In Jesus' name. And everybody said, yeah. Yo, I know today's service was a bit different and hopefully it was toned down. You're chilling. I'm, I'm chilling right now watching it with you um, in my PJs because it's early. At any rate, I, I'm very serious about this, guys. I just, God wants to do something in the Bay and I need your help financially, prayerfully, um, work-wise. Our team, you know, this week I had to talk to a lot of folks and they've just, they're trying their best. So I, I give it up to our team. And this is why you hear me shout them out so many times. Um, but even the workload that they have just to make church happen in this season, we need you to step up and serve. Hit us up, send us an email, shoot us a DM, say you're willing to serve and Andrew or one of the guys will connect with you. Um, but even giving or other ways, I don't wanna be too redundant because I know I have a habit of repeating. But I, I want you to feel my urgency. God's about to do something. And I don't want you to just be a spectator. I want you to be a part of it. So would you come and do that? I love you. Take a few announcements. Take a look at um, these last announcements that are going to come on the slide. Again, revisit our New Year's Eve service. And I'll see you next week. God bless you.